and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. It is our last episode of 2021. What a year it's been. Uh, It has been an interesting year, and the podcast has grown. It's been awesome to watch the growth. We continue to have inspiring people, intentional people, intentional performers who are sharing their story on their mindset, uh, their journey, and anything that they've learned that I think is interesting. So we appreciate you being along the ride with us this year. It does mean the world to us. If you enjoy today's conversation or any of our previous conversations, please head over to iTunes. It makes the world of difference when you write a review. Uh, if you if you rank us and you rate us, that helps too. But the reviews really do make an impact, and it's how a lot of people find their podcasts. So head over to iTunes, rate us a review if you enjoyed today's conversation. And today's guest is going to go deep. Um, this is a meaningful conversation for me. It's deeply personal. I share some personal elements myself in this conversation that if you've listened to podcasts for the last four or five years, you may not know about me. So I open up a bit. I'm pretty vulnerable in this conversation. Uh, And if you don't know anything about me and this is your first time here, welcome. I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And see, at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe labeling competencies like curiosity, mindfulness, leadership, teamwork, communication, All of the elements that help drive team performance and individual performance too, if you label them as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So what we're doing is through coaching and through group workshops and facilitation, we're really trying to empower people and inspire them to take on this notion that these are strong skills. They need to be cultivated. They need to be developed. They need to be learned. And we need to prioritize them if we want to thrive. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, and I know you're going to love the book. We actually talk about uh, today's guest and how he needed to shift his mind when he was playing professional basketball and college basketball and some of the challenges that he faced in his journey playing professional basketball. 
So if you're interested in mindset, if you're interested about how to optimize your mind for performance and also for preparation, you can head over to Amazon or anywhere that books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. If you enjoy my voice, you get more of me via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased it. And truly, it means the world to me when I get a tweet, a text, a DM from someone who found the book useful, found it impactful. That's why I wrote the book. And today's guest, that's why he wrote his book, is to make an impact and to try to impact how people think about the world and open their eyes to some of the good, some of the bad, and the elements of the world. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support with the podcast, with the book. Once again, feel free to write us a review for the book or the podcast. It does help us expand our reach. And we just appreciate you. So it's the end of the year. Thanks for listening. You have time that is limited and time is our greatest resource. So if you spent some of your time in 2021 with me and my guests on this podcast, thank you. We want you to have the best of New Year's. This is a special time of year. Hopefully you're getting to spend some time with family and friends. If you're traveling, enjoy some traveling. Hopefully you're getting to experience life and feel alive. And uh, where I'm from in Washington, D.C., it's starting to get a little cold uh, and you can feel that winter coming. But it's also a time where, at least for me, I start reflecting on what happened this year, uh, what went well, what can I improve on? And then I start planning for, for next year. So I've gotten much better about thinking about how do I want to show up next year? What do I want to do travel-wise? What do I want to do business-wise? What do I want to do with my family? So this is a great time of year for me and for my clients to start visioning out their 2022. That sounds like a big number, but that's what's coming, 2022. So I just wish you all the best. Thanks for the support. I'd love to hear from you. If you've listened to the podcast, shoot me a message, shoot me an email. You know where to find me, strongskills.co. And of course, you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn as well. Um, But today's guest is somebody who I've known from afar, and we sort of talk about that in the beginning of this conversation. But Dan Grunfeld is a former professional professional basketball player. He's an accomplished writer and he's a proud graduate of Stanford University. And he's going to talk about how Stanford was always in his sights as a child, which I thought was pretty interesting. He was an academic All-American in all-conference basketball selection at Stanford. So he's great with the books, but he was also great with the ball. And we're going to talk about how Dan was no slouch as a basketball player. He played professionally for eight seasons in top leagues around the world, including in Germany, Spain, and Israel. That's where some of the best basketball is played around the world. And Dan's writing has been published more than 40 times in media outlets such as Sports Illustrated, The Jerusalem Post, and NBC News. He also earned his MBA from Stanford's Graduate Business School in 2017. And he lives in the Bay Area and works in venture capital today. So we're going to talk a little bit about his mindset as a basketball player, his mindset in venture capital, what his journey was like. His dad was the general manager for the Washington Wizards for a bunch of years and played professionally. And he has a new book, which is really at the heart and the core of our conversation. And the book is called By the Grace of the Game. And I haven't read it yet, but I've ordered it. But he's going to get into his grandparents' story, his dad's story, Um, This is a deep conversation, so I know you're going to find it meaningful. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Dan Grunfeld. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Man, we've gotten to know each other a little bit the last few months, but even before then, I think I was in Israel at one point, and you stopped by our hotel because we had friends there, and then 
the amount of people that have reached out to me over the past year to say, Hey, you got to chat with Dan. He's got this book coming out. I think the two of you would enjoy learning from each other. Uh, It's a lot. And maybe it's Jewish geography. Maybe it's Washington DC connections. Maybe it's just sports, but I'm really excited to get to know you even better today. We'll just have the microphones on and, and we'll get to learn from each other. And before we started recording, I, I often ask my guests, Hey, is there someone else that you think I should have on the podcast? And you put a name in there that is near and dear to my heart. You said Julie Ellian is someone that I think you'd enjoy chatting with. And I sent you back my podcast conversation with Julie. But for those that don't know, Julie is the reason I'm even recording this podcast. Julie is the reason I got into sports psychology. Uh, 15 years ago, she pulled me aside and said, hey, I think you'd enjoy doing this. And, and since then has been my mentor through and through. So I'd love to learn about Julie and how Julie has impacted your life, your career, Uh, and what that relationship has looked like and what it looked like when you were playing. So let's start by talking about Julie. Yeah. Well, first of all, Brian, thanks so much for having me, man. It's it's great to be here with you. Julie's the best, you know, so you, you have a great mentor, uh, a great kind of guide for, for your burgeoning career. Uh, I started working with Julie when I was playing professional basketball overseas because uh, I had, you know, my challenges and things I was trying to work through. And, you know, as athletes, we work so hard on our bodies and, and it's prioritized so much, but uh, especially when I was playing, right? This is in the mid 2000s um, into the 2010s, much less emphasis put on our minds, you know, and I was always a very analytical thinker. I always felt that my mind slowed me down in a lot of ways. And it kind of, uh, it, it kept me from becoming my, the best version of myself on the basketball court. And so I started working with Julie, just talking with her, you know, explaining how I felt. And she was so helpful to me to gain perspective, to calm on the court. And so my performance really elevated by working with her. And so I'm so grateful for her. She's tremendous at what she does and she's a wonderful person. And so background on Julie, she works as a mental performance coach. And so when I got into sports psychology, it was really because of Julie. You mentioned being an analytical analytical thinker and both of our dads have had successes in their careers. Was your dad as a player, an analytical type player, or was he able to let go of his mind as a player? Because you and I around the same age, I didn't watch your dad play. I obviously watched him as a general manager and working in the front office. But what do you know about the way he played and and how he thought about the game? Yeah, very different from me. He was able, he just played, you know, and we talk and we'll get into this when we talk about the book and my dad's backstory and kind of how he found basketball and what basketball meant to him. But you know, I, and I write in the book that I, I wanted to play in the NBA since I was a little kid. And when you look up at that mountain, it, it's like a million feet high. For my dad, given his background, w- which we'll get into, he just started playing basketball at the park. He just step by step, you know, so he, he wasn't considering it all. You know, there weren't expectations. He just played and he played freely and it showed, you know, he was, especially in high school, college, I mean, he was so, so dominant and I had ability and I had success in my own right, not to discount what I did, but I always felt that I was being held back by myself. And my dad would always tell me, you know, paralysis by analysis, you know, and, and also if you're thinking, you're stinking, you know, though he would say those two things, you know, and so I, I tried to quiet my mind. I tried to just be natural and, you know, and Brian, you, you wrote such a great book, which I enjoyed so much and talking about like thinking like a child, you know, I, I tried to do that, but I, w- I wish I would have read your book uh, 15 years ago while I was working with Julie as well, because it just would have contributed to me being able to kind of relax and take it in stride. Yeah, I would imagine you were amazing when it came to the preparation mind, which I talk about. You were humble, you would analyze everything, but then 
would you let go of that and play with your instincts? Would you play with what I call arrogance and just let that out of you? It's interesting though, because your dad then had another career after he had a really successful professional career where analytics, analytics, see how we even talk these days, an analytical mind really probably helped him in doing his job. It was about strategy and, and thinking, you know, it's interesting when you think about front office or coaching, a lot of times players that are instinctual struggle when they make that transition out. Why do you think he was able to transition to this other side in his career? Yeah, yeah, he's a very smart guy. He is an analytical data-driven thinker in some aspects of his life. And I think multiple things can be true at the same time. You know, you can be analytical in some areas of your life, but when you step foot on the basketball court, and, and we'll get into this when we talk about my book, but that's such a deep emotional story and what the game did for him and, and kind of the relief that it provided in his life, that that was a whole different area for him. And so he was very natural and easy on the basketball court. And then, you know, off the court, when he became an executive, you know, he was able to apply some of his like critical thinking skills, analytical skills to, to great success. You work in venture now. Does that critical thinking that got in the way in in maybe on the court at times? And we should say at times because you had a very good career. I mean, like this close and we're just doing audio, but I'm, you know, an inch close to the yeah. NBA. I mean, 99th percentile when it comes to basketball players. And then you played overseas for a bunch of years. So it's not like you didn't achieve when it comes to basketball, but do you think that analytical mind helps you in the venture world in a way that maybe it hindered you in basketball? Yeah. So very quickly to address what you said about my own career, you know, I had a great run, you know, and I was a all first team, all pack 10 player at Stanford. I had a very successful professional career, but you know how it is we really only compare ourselves relative to our expectation of ourselves, you know? And I always felt that I could do a little more and I could probably be a little better, which I think is a, is common amongst athletes, you know, and you're always trying to wring that towel dry and striving to understand how can I be a little bit better, you know, but, but yes, thank you for saying that. And I am proud of, uh, of the career I had working, working in venture capital. Uh, absolutely. I apply some of those skills that maybe hampered me on the court being perceptive, you know, really th- thinking you know, deeply about certain things that doesn't help on the basketball court. When you know what's at stake, when there's eight seconds left, when you're considering, uh, you know, the consequences and you're remembering the last play, uh, you know, those things aren't helpful. But yes, in, in venture and in my day job, it, it certainly does help to kind of have an active analytical mind. Uh, but, you know, they say be a goldfish, you know, when you when you're an athlete, you know, you don't you don't want to remember much. You don't want to think about much because honestly, that's the way you play the best. And I'll tell you, we talk about flow. You know, there were, of course, so many times as an athlete where I had a, the right coach or the right situation, or I was just playing really well, where I would hit that flow. I didn't think about a thing. I, it was, I was so light and easy on the basketball court. I played great. I had, the, I had the most fun. You know, so I had those moments, but it was just it was hard to, to sink in that zone as, as often as I would have liked. It's so interesting. You've used the word expectations a couple of times, and we've just been recording for a few minutes now. How did you think about expectations? Dad played in the NBA. Dad's working in the NBA. You're a little kid bouncing a ball. You know, there was one dream for you. And it's interesting because for me, I was a kid bouncing a ball, but it became evident quickly that I was not going to achieve the dreams of being John Stockton or whoever I thought I was going to be. For you, as you think about that word expectation, how do you think about that? So, it's important to know that I was literally born around the NBA schedule. So my, my, uh, my parents scheduled my birth. So 
my dad had two road trips and they wanted him to be there when I was born and then be there eight days later for my bris. And so they scheduled my C-section delivery around his schedule when he was a player for the Knicks. So that, that tells you a lot. I was born into basketball and, you know, my parents were so great. My dad, like never put pressure on me, always told me you find your path, do what you love to do, figure that out. But I love to play basketball and what kid doesn't want to be like their dad, you know? So for me, from the very beginning, I, you know, I want, I wanted to be an NBA player. And then externally, you feel that pressure as well. Not, not the pressure to be an NBA player, but just because your dad does something very well, there's eyeballs on you, you know? So there was, there were those two things, but even kind of more profoundly, and this is why I wrote the book, you know, my grandparents survived the Holocaust. You know, my dad came to America as an immigrant who didn't speak English and never touched a basketball. Like what the game did for my family was so big and so meaningful that there were, there was maybe whether it's expectation or obligation, there was a lot wrapped around that for me. So for all those reasons, it was just an intense journey. It's interesting, Dan, I've spent some time with RC Buford, who was the general manager of the San Antonio Spurs and is now the president and has helped build that we'll call him a dynasty um, in San Antonio. I've spent some time around Rick Sund, who same generation as your dad, similar, you know, was a general manager for the Seattle Supersonics and the Atlanta Hawks. And, and I think about those two guys and their sons are in, in the NBA or in the world of basketball for you when you retired, why not get into a front office position? Why not get into coaching? Why have you gone the venture route? Yeah, it's a great question. People ask me that all the time, particularly since I love the game. You know, you I played at a high level it. and you played at a really high level. Like it's not as if it's not as if this wouldn't be a normal path for somebody who who had your basketball career, let alone was around it from the day your press happened. Like, yeah. like literally it's in your it's in your blood and, and you and then your environment. Like, why not? Why not stay in that world? Well, first of all, you never say never, you know, like you never know where kind of the road will take you. But yeah, for me, you know, I was always very curious. I love to learn, you know, after I retired as a player, I went to Stanford and got my MBA and that opened me up to a lot of different things, you know, and I joined a startup, which we grew. And then I had the opportunity to join a top venture capital firm. And I really like being challenged and learning new, new areas. And so basketball is a great love. I've done it my whole life. I'll do it my whole life in one way or the other. Uh, but yes, as of right now, I just hadn't, I just haven't kind of made that jump. And, and, you know, you kind of have to trust your gut and go with your instincts. And I, this is the path that I felt was best for me for right now, but that's not to say that I don't love the game, that I rule out a career in basketball in the future, but you know how it is like, and my, and you'll get this in my book, my basketball career was very, very intense. So I think after I retired, there was something nice about having a little space. Now I say that my first job after I retired was at the NBA. Okay. So, so let's not say that I didn't like, you know, I didn't go too far from the game, but you know, I just think that there's been something nice in my life right now from having a, a little bit of space, but um, I'll, I'll always love it. All right. So this is where maybe we intersect because for me, I, I think sports is addicting. And once you get bit by that bug, it's hard to get that out of you. And yet there's a dark side, a downside. You use the word intense lifestyle. I don't think people realize it is not a normal lifestyle to plan a bris around someone's work schedule. Like that's, that's <laughs> even for people that are hard charging wall street venture, what have you, they typically have more autonomy when it comes to their schedule. 
but sports lacks autonomy. You, you often cannot dictate your own schedule when you're home, when you're practicing the games. So being around the game from such a young age, your, your whole life, I'm, I'm at a point where for me, like I've worked with a ton of athletes, a ton of sports teams. Um, I've actually seen your dad up close and personal <laughs> when he was with the wizards, yeah. when I was working with Julie um, and I was working alongside Julie for me, I've come to a place in my career where lifestyle is so important as a father and as a husband, and I want to be home for dinner and I want to be there in all these different areas for you. You, you saw an athlete and you saw a general manager, you saw the wins and losses, the highs and lows, you saw the travel. I'm curious if any of that goes into your thinking as, as you think about your career, um, because you get to choose and, and perhaps your dad couldn't. Like he, he may not have had a choice, but you do, you have a choice as far as what's going to be the next 30 years for you career wise. Does lifestyle and, and, and that go into the thinking as well as you plan your journey? A hundred percent. And I'm really happy you brought it up. And I grew up and I was born and grew up in and around the NBA. It's a wonderful life in so many ways. You get to experience really cool things. You get those highs and lows of competition are unforgettable. It makes a family very close. Like I wouldn't change my upbringing at all, but you see the other side of it. And yeah, you, you have no control over kind of your time. And so for me as a husband, as a father, yes, it was it's so important to me to be around my family. It's the most important thing, you know? And so you have to make these trade-offs. And that's not to say that folks who work in the NBA don't prioritize their family. But for me at this point in my life, yes, like I want to make sure that I'm home and then I'm present as much as possible. Uh, and here's the other part of it. You, with professional sports, you, there's so much variance that you have very little control ultimately over outcomes. You have, you have control over your input, you know, the work you put in, how you make your decisions. But after that, so much is out of your control. A 22-year-old player has a, tears an ACL, which happened to me in my career, you know, or someone has confidence issues that you could never have foreseen or whatever it is, you know, so that's also a part of it. And I guess life is like that. That's not to say that you could always have complete control, but professional sports in particular, it's a, it's a very wild ride. And so you have to factor that in about how do you want to live? Well, I also think with that outcome being out of your control, there's just immense paranoia that exists. Mm -hmm. I mean, your dad was with the wizards as a general manager for how long, 15, 20 years. Like, yeah, I think 16, 17 seasons, a long time. That's not the norm for that position. They fire, they fire people that are successful in the NBA. They, uh, I mean, look at what's going on in the college football landscape right now. There, there's just so many dynamics that I think it, there's also this immense paranoia because there are only 30 teams or 32 teams in other sports. And so there's such limited availability for certain roles. And and then same thing in, in professional sports, they cut, they trade. I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen in other other walks of life and other careers. And so it's just an interesting thing. And and by no means, I think both of us are saying it's wonderful in so many ways and it's a privilege and it's a gift and it's beautiful in, in a multitude of ways. But I think for those that haven't been inside it, 
there's sometimes some glamorization that comes with it because they say, oh, you're making X amount of dollars or you get to play a game for a living, that there's sometimes a lack of understanding of the downsides that come with these industries and, and that profession as well. So um, I figured you'd be an interesting person to, to chat with about that. Um, but you, you also um, have talked a lot about you know, you mentioned your ACL and things that are out of your control. I tore my ACL and, and playing basketball, but for me, it, it wasn't a career impact. You know, I, I think I got the surgery and then I couldn't play my Wednesday night basketball games and I couldn't yeah. play golf and I couldn't play tennis. And, you know, there were things that I couldn't do, but when you tore your ACL, it was a pretty critical time for you. Um, so talk about what that was like as a player and going through that injury and, and how that impacted you and, and the mental challenge that came with, with that injury. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I write about this all very candidly in my book. And by the way, my book is called By the Grace of the Game for a reason, right? Because basketball came into my family's life at the time we needed it most. So that all kind of speaks to the what the game meant to me and how intense that journey was. And so and it relates to my injury because, you know, my sophomore year at Stanford, we were the number one team in the country. We started 26-0. and 0. So think about that. The college basketball season starts like around Thanksgiving. We didn't lose our first game until March. I mean, that, that was, I mean, and we're playing in the Pac-10. So it was just an unbelievable run. Uh, I was probably the worst player on the team. I averaged three and a half points per game. I shot terrible percentages. I was like a top 100 player out of high school. You know, I had a good freshman season. But I just, I was, I couldn't perform my sophomore year because I thought that I deserved more shots, more, more opportunities. And you know how it is when you lose your confidence and uh, you don't feel supported, I, I couldn't perform. And so I worked very hard that summer. I kind of came in on a mission to prove everyone wrong. The next year I was the most improved player in the country and in the history of Stanford's basketball program. So I was Dan, averaging what, eight. What, what changed there? What changed? First of all, opportunity, right? Cause we have to acknowledge that I was, I, you know, the person I was playing under graduated, it was my time. We got a new coach. Not that I wouldn't have succeeded under my old coach, but you know, there was kind of a little bit of a change up. And I worked out with uh, my trainer, who's a very, you know, he's gained notoriety you know, for working with NBA players. And we just, we locked in eight hours a day, thousand shots a day. So I had never worked harder. So, and my, you know, it's, I say in the book, like there's nothing more powerful than the human heart on fire. And that's what, where I was, you know, I was just, just determined. I was on a mission to, to prove, prove people wrong and to prove myself right. Cause I thought I could do it. And so. Hey Dan, that, pause, it, pause there for me. Was that time in your life similar to how your dad thought about basketball at all was that like hard on fire similar to him or was it different it's i think it was different because like i said earlier my my eyes were always fixed on the peak of the mountain for me you know so i my dad he was always in the moment and that's why he he did so well you know so i think we just had different outlooks and we'll talk more about my dad's background and how different it is from mine but i think that really contributes to why he looked at it the way he did why i looked at it the way i did hey dan is your mom more similar to you yes mm, so you have yep. yeah go ahead talk about your mom a little bit my mom's amazing uh, her my dad and i are very similar in a lot of ways but my mom and i think the same and feel the same and so my out yeah and, and and by the way my dad and my sister have those things they think the same and feel the same more often so uh yeah we're we're just my mom and i are both very intense very again our minds go fast and sometimes that's helpful sometimes that's hurtful there's just a little bit more energy and pressure around situations there's more 
you know, and so again, like as an athlete, I, I say everything in moderation that can be really helpful. And that drove me to succeed a lot, but it also hindered me in these certain ways. Yeah. It's interesting. So, so you have this big improvement and, and what was that like experiencing that feeling that and seeing the fruits of your labor come out? It's interesting you ask that. So yeah, so I mentioned three and a half points per game my sophomore year, terrible percentages from the field, all that stuff. My junior year, I was averaging 18 points per game and five and a half rebounds in the Pac-10. So I was the second leading scorer, projected to be a late first round pick in the NBA draft. So it was happening for me. It was my moment. And I, I didn't really enjoy it as much as I should have. You know, and I, and, I, and I write in the book, you know, if I, if I could do one more, one thing differently, then it would be smile more and enjoy more. But, you know, and then, but I've also said to myself, I'm kind of wired in a way where the way I enjoy is putting my head down and working, you know, and then, and so it's, it's, it's complicated, but ultimately deep down in my soul, there was nothing greater than that, those moments. Cause I had done it. It was through hard work. I'd become what I wanted to become. So like I didn't celebrate, you know, I, we didn't have parties. I didn't talk about it, but inside of me, I, I it was, it was the best thing ever. And yeah, I, at the end of the year, you know, I was planning in my head, leaving early to, to go to the NBA. Um, I was playing that well. And uh, I tore my ACL on national television. I was at, it was early in the second half and I already had 16 points against Cal. So I would have 30, you know, so I was, I was going, it was my moment. And just like that in one step, you know, th everything changed. Do you play the what if game? No, I don't. I don't because I, I don't because I'll tell you what I'll tell you why because I'm scared to think what if because then I wouldn't have met my wife I wouldn't have the life that I do you know what I mean so that listen you I know what would have happened if I didn't get hurt I would have been an NBA player for a long time but there's a lot of there's a lot of things that happen in life that we can't control and our paths are determined by external factors and and I learned this from my grandmother you know again who's a Holocaust survivor who's who's the central figure in my book it's not really about what happens to you in life. It's about how you respond to what happens to you, you know? And so uh, I, I don't play that. What if game about my injury? We're going to transition in a minute to your grandma. And, and I think a, an easy way to do it or a seamless way to do it is to talk about playing in Israel and, and what that experience is like for you. But the other part of what if for me, as I'm listening to you is what if it was 10 years later? Uh, Cause the NBA has also changed a lot. Um, in the style and the way it's played, I don't know this, but perhaps you would you your, your style and um, abilities would translate better in a different game, uh, a different style. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that as well. I do. I think my game would translate better today than it did then. Again, not that it didn't translate well there. Like, I don't want to like, I want to give myself the credit. Like I was dominant in high school. I had dominant moments in college and I was a very good pro, you know? So like I had a really, really good career, but nowadays there's a little bit more emphasis on the past, which for me is important. I was not an off the dribble player, you know, and uh, also the three point shot. And I was a very good shooter, but I could also struggle if I wasn't comfortable. And and back then, and it's weird to say that, right? Back then, is it like, you know, you know, you're getting up there when you refer to your playing days as back then. But uh, the three-point shot was not prioritized as much. In fact, my coaches would tell me, don't fall in love with the three. And because of how I thought and, and how I thought too much, it didn't help me that every every three-pointer really mattered. And, it, you know, so today, if, if, if my coach would tell me, hey, man, shoot it, shoot it. 
I would have made a lot more, you know, and I think that would have helped me kind of spread my wings and flourish more. Well, I laugh. I had Danny Ferry on the podcast and to your point, I mean, Danny player of the year at Duke first, you know, first pick, whatever, like tons of accolades playing the NBA for a bunch of years. But I said, I'm like, Danny, you were kind of like a stretch four before the stretch four thing. That's you're right. Super skilled six foot 10 player. And it is, it's interesting just to think about how he might look different in today's game. Right. And while you're right, it's not, you know, this isn't that long ago, but the NBA, if you watch it today and you watched it 10, 15 years ago, it's just drastically different. And I laugh when people talk about the game today, because when I watch the NBA, I'm like, gosh, the passing, the ball movement, the catch and shoot, the way they try to get good looks. You could argue that the three point ball is overemphasized. And I understand that. And, you know, I think there's a valid argument there. But when I watch college basketball versus the NBA, the, the style that they're playing in the NBA now is a way more aesthetically pleasing style. And so it's interesting when people say they still think the NBA is about isolation and all this stuff. I'm like, I don't know what NBA you're watching. Yeah. <laughs> when I watch, there's very few players that do isolation and they're the best in the world at it. So it's actually pretty amazing to watch them go to work as well. Um, so that's that. Take me to Israel, because um, that's actually where I think we were in a hotel room at, at some or not a hotel, a hotel lobby at some point. And I think you walked in and it, it might be your wife now. She might have known someone. I, I remember it being a thing. But um, what was life like over there? And, and what was your experience like playing professionally? Yeah, it was amazing. And, you know, Israel means a lot to my family because when my dad fled Romania as a refugee, he had a passport for Israel. So my, you know, and Israel really opened its arms to Holocaust survivors after the war. And that's my family. And so uh, at my, my family spent six months in Rome after they left Romania. And at the last minute, they were able to come to the United States. So, you know, most of my family ended up in Israel. And I first went to Israel in 2009 when I played in the Maccabea games. You know, the great Bruce Pearl of Auburn was my coach and we won a gold medal. And it was such a profound experience, just not only the, the, the basketball side, but learning about Israel, you know, and connecting with the Jewish homeland in that way. So I said, I never said to my wife, I'm going to finish my career here because I was playing in Spain at the time. But that's what I did. Uh, I had four amazing years in Israel, very good basketball, uh, but even more so just being able to, you know, again, connect with family, be part of the Holy Land in that way was it, it was so special. And my wife and I still talk about it. And there was actually a write up yesterday about my book in the Jerusalem Post you know, which is so meaningful because it's, you know, it's the Jerusalem Post and I played for Hopwell Jerusalem, you know, so for me and, you know, we'll get into this, but my dad's the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. So for me to play as a professional basketball player with Jerusalem across my chest, you know, it's, it's very meaningful. For those that haven't been to Jerusalem, talk about what that city's like. Oh, it's so fascinating. It's so amazing. I mean, it's the cradle of civilization, right? Not, not just Judaism, right? All, all the major religions, kind of have those roots there in Jerusalem. Uh, if I could recommend visiting a city, I mean, that, that's at the top of the list because there's so many historical things to see. And I don't mean like 200 years ago. <laughs> I mean like 2000 years ago, right? If you go into the Judean Hills and there are, there's just, there's just so much history there. And rarely do you go somewhere where you can feel it in the air. And actually, Madison Square Garden is like that on a lesser scale, of course. But if you walk into Madison Square Garden or Pauley Pavilion in UC, uh, UCLA, two places where I've been lucky to play, you just feel it. And so Jerusalem is that on the city level, like the air. You, you just know like, wow, this is the significance of this city. And so 
you know, we live you know, 15, 20 minutes from the old city of Jerusalem. So we play a game and then we go grab a bite to eat in the old city of Jerusalem. <laughs> it's, a, it's the coolest thing ever. I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. You mentioned the feeling, and I, I agree, having not played in Madison Square Garden, but I've been in Madison Square Garden, I've been in Jerusalem, the intensity that you feel in those places, the electricity, New York City as a whole, like that city when you, for me at least, we often take the train up and then we get out, um, you know, at Penn Station and then you get out and you're on the street, you just feel a level of intensity. Mm -hmm. And I think that same intensity it's not the same, but the feeling that it's, it, this is a different environment you feel when you're in Jerusalem, there is a, and there's also the conflict that you mm -hmm. feel when you're in Jerusalem. Yeah. I find you feel it far more in Jerusalem than you feel it when you're in Tel Aviv, you, you, you Jerusalem, you feel different when you're there and it's not all comfortable. Like it's, it's, That's true. it's, it's a very interesting, unique place um, and I think New York City to I don't want to live in New York City and I don't want to live in Jerusalem, to be honest, but I love visiting those places because they create something inside of me that is a little more alive, a little more, um, a little more alive. That's the way I describe it. Yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. You know, you, you can feel it in the air and it's, it's a it's an interesting thing to say. Right. But it's it's so palpable in both those places, in New York, in the garden, in Jerusalem, in different ways. But yeah, particularly Jerusalem, because like you said, it's spiritual. There's tension that you can also feel. It, yeah, it's it, there's history that you can feel that weighs down in certain ways, that lifts you up in certain ways. It's it's an experience. Are you spiritual? Yeah, I am. I am. I, I, and, and again, my book is called By the Grace of the Game. You know, and and there's so many things in our family story that I write about candidly in my book that talk about the universe, right, and how the universe works and. One of, one of those examples is, you know, I wanted to go to Stanford since I was in seventh grade, you know, we and my grandmother lived 25 minutes from campus and we visited her when my sister was looking at colleges and we looked at Stanford and that's when I was a youngster. I said, this is where I'm going to go, you know, top basketball program, top school, close to my grandma and great weather, by the way, that didn't hurt. Um, and so I made that goal. And, and I mean, that was a goal that wasn't casual. I told people from that day, that's where I'm going to play college basketball. And I, I was getting better and things were happening. They, they started recruiting me, but it's, it was still a long shot. You know I mean? That was, they went to the final four in 1998 and we're talking about 2001. They're a top five team. So this is a long shot for me. And, but they were recruiting me and I had one kind of big tournament. It was the, the final tournament of the, of the summer when I was playing AU basketball in Las Vegas. And this was my chance to get to Stanford and be next to my, close to my grandmother who deserves it more than anyone, you know, cause we we're so close. She survived the Holocaust. Like for, for me to be out there with her would have been a great blessing. In my first game of that tournament, I scored 45 points. And, and that's, that's the universe. You know, I mean, 32 minute game, Brian, by the way. Right. So this Damn is like, an, this is, <laughs> this is, it's actually, that was an otherworldly experience, but that's the spirituality of it. Like there was some force pulling me, getting me towards my grandma and getting me to kind of continue this journey with basketball for me, for my family. So yeah, I, I am spiritual. All right, we could continue this conversation and talk about basketball and talk about the NBA and, and talk about performance. But the real reason why we're, we're having this conversation is to talk about grandmas. Um, and I say grandmas because my grandma is from Hungary. Um, her parents are Hungarian and Romanian. And my grandma lost two brothers in the Holocaust. Um, her brother moved to Israel. 
her sister moved to the U.S. And she followed her sister to the U.S. after being in a slave camp, in an internment camp. Wow. And so my grandma, I'm getting chills as I talk about her, but just like a massive impact on how I see the world. Um, I grew up close to her. I grew up, you know, 15, 20 minutes away from her. And she's a big part of my life. She passed away two years ago. Um, but as I talk about her and I listen to some of what you've done with the book and how you've thought about it in our family, you know, anytime we needed to do a book report on someone interesting, we went to grandma, we called her Grammy and she would open up a little bit and she would talk about people, um, you know, sneaking bread to her in the camp and people helping her. But the story that that stuck out the most about my grandma was she tells a story about coming over on a boat and being on that boat with American soldiers uh, after they were liberated and coming into New York City and seeing the Statue of Liberty. And this American soldier turns to her and says, you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady again, the Statue of Liberty. And my grandma turns to him and says, no, 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 you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady again. And so my grandma lived her life really not bitter. Um, she really lived her life grateful. And I went, I knew we were going to have this conversation. So I started, I have videos of her talking about the Holocaust. Um, she submitted a lot of information so mm -hmm. that people don't forget what happened. Uh, I have audio and my grandma was grateful. Like she lived mm -hmm. her life with gratitude and her whole thing is like Hitler didn't win. Look at the family I've been able to create. How lucky are we to live in this country that doesn't persecute its people like what I felt? And we can all admit the U.S. has flaws and warts that that we will always have to work with. But like she was really paramount for me, at least to say, like, there are bad people in this world and there are bad things that are going to happen. And they suck. And, and, mm -hmm. and there's no denying that. And you have to be aware of that because it's always a possibility. And we should live with gratitude and we should be appreciative of what we have. And so the day she died, she looked at my grandpa. It's interesting. My grandpa, Max, was very healthy, lived an amazing life, you know, 95 years old and was awake and aware for a lot of that. My grandma had dementia and in her later years wasn't really herself. And they end up passing away like six weeks apart. <laughs> my grandma, uh, my grandma was a survivor through and through. And I would actually argue she was a thriver because she lived her life thriving and her and her, her husband were just in love with each other. And so even though she wasn't all there mentally, she stayed and physically, she was a shell. She stayed with him till, till the very end. Um, so I wanted to share that with you because um, as I said, I think we have some synergies, but that piece i'm not sure you knew and i have i don't think i've talked about it we've done 250 plus podcast episodes but my grandma the way she saw the world um after the holocaust is one of the most remarkable things i've i've ever experienced so with that like i want to open up the floor for you to tell your family's story and um you know i think we'll be able to riff on it a little bit um but i I am amazed by how curious you were to learn more, how thirsty you were to continue to educate yourself. And I, I'm lucky I still have a lot of this stuff recorded, but I don't think about it as much as maybe I could. And 
Um, it's this is a reminder to me that these people are, are going or they're gone. Um, and it's going to be up to their grandchildren and their great grandchildren to, to pass that torch, to let people know what happened. Um, so thank you for writing this. Um, I'm going to read it. I think I told you before it's on back order. Um, <laughs> but as soon as I read it, you'll probably be hearing from me. And, um, I'd love to learn more since I haven't read it yet, uh, about, your family story. And, and I know you, you and your grandma are, are still close. So um, I'm going to leave it open. Like, where do you want to start? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Talk about chills. When you mentioned what your, your grandma said about the Statue of Liberty, that's, I mean, that, that's just, just incredible. And uh, it's interesting, you know, cause my grandparents are from Transylvania on the border of Romania and Hungary, you know, and Hungarian is my dad's native language. I heard him speaking it yesterday to my grandma, <laughs> you know, that's, that's did you the, grow the, up with chicken pepper crash? That of was course. like, yeah. Not only was... did I grow up with it, I'm still eating it. You know, my <laughs> yeah. grandma's 96. She's cooking huge feasts. Amazing. So I'm still eating it. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So, my, you know, my grand, both my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, you know, so, so born in Transylvania. Uh, my grandfather was in a forced labor camp in Hungary. So he had it a little bit easier. Not that he had it easy, but he was a six foot three, big strapping guy. He was actually a world ranked ping pong player and a semi-professional soccer player. So he was a great sportsman. So they put him to work. Uh, my grandmother had it harder. So she happened to be visiting a sister in Budapest when the Nazis invaded. And so actually she got a letter from her dad immediately that said, come home. And, um, and so she was with her sister. They packed their suitcases. They were preparing to go to the train station. The next day they got another letter from their dad that said, if you can stay where you are. And, uh, my grandma still says that letter saved her from Auschwitz. And that was the last communication she ever had with her father, who was her hero. And his name was Solomon Samuel. Uh, my son's name is Solomon after him. And he, he was killed in Auschwitz. And so my grandmother had a chance to survive on the run. You, if you're familiar with Holocaust history, which I, I think, you know, you clearly are, uh, you probably heard of Raul Wallenberg, you know, who's regarded as one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust. Actually, the street outside the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. It's called Raul Wallenberg Way, you know, after him. Uh, he saved my grandmother's life twice in Budapest. So he issued protective passports and she was able to obtain one. She also risked her life to get 17. They were called Schutz passes. Uh, she was able to get 17 for others. So I tell people my grandmother's my hero, but she's also a hero. You know, and we were asking her recently about that because she she kept going back to this embassy to get more and more risking her life. And you know, we said, what, what made you do it? She said, you know, people needed help. And when you're young, you take risks, you know, and you try to, you try to do what's right. And so eventually that, that passport was no longer valid because of the change in government. And she was caught by the Nazis. She was thrown in jail. She was thrown in the Budapest ghetto. And I'll tell you this story, Brian, because this is amazing when you talk about kind of the universe and, and spirituality. So my grandmother was reunited with one, with a brother, in, in the Budapest ghetto. She didn't know where anyone was. She didn't know if they were alive or dead, but she was reunited with her brother. And when they lived, when they were in the ghetto together, the Nazis stayed out. They kind of let the Jews uh, administer life within the ghetto. And at the end of the war, they saw 20 Nazis enter the ghetto with machine guns. And word quickly spread that there was, a, there was an order from Adolf Eichmann, you know, one of the you know, most kind of feared Nazis in history, uh, to, to liquidate the ghetto, to exterminate the remaining 80,000 Jews. So my grandmother and her brother ran to the top of the building they were sleeping in, which is a small attic space. There's about a dozen, you know, scared uh, Jews, you know, packed into this attic, just trying to hide from this massacre. And they waited for five minutes and then 20 minutes and then an hour and nothing happened. And they went to check and the Nazis were gone. 
And then the Russian and Romanian soldiers came, came in, they liberated the ghetto. That's how my grandmother survived the Holocaust. So that was in 1945. 20, 40 years later in 1985, they made a movie about Raul Wallenberg's life and Richard Chamberlain played the title character. And in that movie, my grandma learned that it was Wallenberg who raced to the gates of the ghetto, got out and pleaded and begged with the general, who was the only person who had the who could have stopped the massacre and said, you will hang for this. The war is over. You'll go down in history as a murderer. Don't kill these people. And so it took her 40 years to learn that Wallenberg had saved her life twice during the war. It's just crazy. And and growing up with with grandma and, you know, wanting to go to college nearby. T tell us a little bit about what she was like um, in your life, just as as grandma growing up. I mean, such an important figure in my life. And, you know, I, I learned so much from her. We've always been ex extremely close. And here's another thing I'll tell you, because so, you know, after the Holocaust, there was more, you know, decade under communism in Romania, right? So it, it didn't get easier. They, they fled as you know, refugees under duress. It was, it was a very hard living in Romania with that brutality. Uh, they eventually came to the United States and there's a lot of intricacies to that story as well, but it was basically like a miracle to, to come to the United States. And so I say, you know, they were living the American dream just by being in America. But as soon as they got to, to this country, my uncle, who's my dad's older brother, eight years older than my dad. And by the way, I said my dad's native language is Hungarian. What he called his brother in Hungarian translates in English to my king, right? So that shows you what a little brother thinks about his big brother. He was diagnosed with leukemia and he passed away within a year. And so, and again, by the grace of the game, like it was then that my dad found basketball, you know, and, and when he really needed it. But for my grandmother to lose a son after after what, you know, she lost seven immediate family members in the Holocaust, both parents and five siblings, you know, and then to lose a son, you can't, you can't really even comprehend that, that level of tragedy. And like you said about your Grammy, you know, my, I call my grandmother on you, you know, which means mother in Hungarian, like the most positive, hopeful, amazing person in the world. Never once have heard her say, Oh, what I went through, or if you only, you know, she, she just, you know, has this, the most amazing spirit. And so I've learned so much from her and, you know, my basketball career and some of the tension that I, that we talked about before and, and my obligation and why I was pushing so hard, it was wrapped up a lot in her and her story. And that's what I write in the book. That's why I wrote the book, you know, because my, you know, her, her relatives, they never had a chance, you know, to live this life. My grandmother had to survive the Holocaust. My dad had to, you know, be, be an immigrant in America, you know, bullied, loses a brother, I have the life I do because of them, you know? So I wanted to make something of it. And that really contributed to the pressure I felt as an athlete, but also just kind of speaks to how much of an impact my grandmother's had on me. And that, that's why I wrote the book again. Was your grandpa, was he similar to your grandma or did he view the Holocaust from a different lens? I wish I knew more. He passed away when I was two years old. Uh, I think from what I understand, it was similar. And I, and I write about his story in the book as well. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, he passed when I was young, so I never got the chance. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I found, I don't know if you found this, you know, it, it's often a binary with Holocaust survivors. Either you don't want to talk about it or you really want to, you know, make sure the history lives on and you want to honor the people. And my grandmother was the, in the latter camp. She, she, she's always talked about it. But that being said, I didn't really know all the details until I did the year and a half of research that I did for this book, you know, because talking about pulling threads and, and uh, following 
you know, kind of the narrative. I, I, we never, you know, I never got the chance to really do that so in depth. And so I learned so much uh, from this research, even though she spoke about it ordinarily. Two binary things that I, I would pull on one. I think you're right. My grandma did not want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And even the interview she did is with something called Shoah, which I think mm-hmm. is in USC, uh, yep. in Southern California. And they did had this whole project and, um, you know, I think my grandpa actually was the one who was like, you really need to get this on video while you still have all your faculties and, and you can validate pictures. Um, and I think Steven Spielberg was behind a lot of that yes, mission to try to record survivors when they're alive. So so my grandma, I think, was different. She did not want to talk about it unless we came to her for a book report and then she would tell us some stories. Right. Um, but she didn't really want to dwell on it. Um, and even saying dwell on it doesn't even sound like that's the right word to use there, but she did not love talking about it. So that's one thing I think you're right on as far as some people think it's really important to. And I think there were others that said, no, like, I don't want to go there. The other thing that I've found, and I wanted to riff on with you a little bit, and I think this can go beyond the the Holocaust. I think it's anyone that goes through something difficult, any sort of adversity. It could be cancer. It could be a sexual assault. It could be like, think of like awful traumatic experiences. Like, I think there are three pathways to how you handle those. There's the victim, the survivor, and the thriver. And the victim says, why me? The survivor says, it is what it is. And the thriver says, watch this. And actually this came to me when I was working with a woman who was a cancer survivor and a sexual assault survivor. And she looked at me one day and she said, Brian, I don't want to be a survivor. I want to be a thriver. I don't want to go through my life just surviving. Um, And then there's more to this that it's a framework that I often use with my clients, but a a victim that says, why me? If you go through the Holocaust or you a sexual assault or cancer or something traumatic, it is normal. And I would even actually say it's helpful to explore why me it's helpful to be a victim um, in that mode, because you're going to explore and then you're going to realize like, wait, I actually didn't do anything to get sexually assaulted. No one does anything to get sexually assaulted. It's someone else's shit, right? Cancer, like other than maybe smoking cigarettes, like most people, it's like, I didn't do anything to become, to get this cancer. And so the Holocaust, it wasn't our grandma's or, or your grandpa's fault that this happened. It was right. like, it was his stuff. It was on him. And so I think if you explore as a victim, you then get to the place of a survivor, which says it is what it is. This happened. And I have to acknowledge that this happened. I have to acknowledge that this bad thing happened. And I have to have acceptance that it happened. It doesn't mean I'm not pissed, but I have to get to a place of acceptance and and then if I do that, then I can be like, all right, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to thrive. I'm going to tell my story or I'm going to raise an amazing family or I'm going to you know, go out and raise money for leukemia and lymphoma or stand up for, for those who have been sexually assaulted. And, and I, I give those stages because I think all of us to a lesser extent go through that when we deal with hard things. We have moments where we do need to be a victim and then we just need to find a way whether it's through therapy or through telling our story or support or, you know, whatever you need to do to find a way to not stay in why me mode. 
and get to it is what it is and, and sort of acceptance mode. Like to me, that's the work that we all have to do. And we can see it with our grandmas. We can see mm-hmm. there's probably a time where they had to go into why me, they had to mm-hmm. actually be in that space. And some, and this is where I say it, it can be binary as well. I think there are a lot of Holocaust survivors who stayed as victims and mm-hmm. we could understand that there are sex, people that are sexually assaulted that stay as victims. There are people that get cancer that stay as victims. And I have empathy for that. I don't have sympathy because mm-hmm. I haven't been through it, but I can understand why someone would stay in that mode. But for all of us, I think that's the question that I ask is, gosh, if my grandma could move from victim to survivor to thriver, then when I go through hard things, like maybe I, I want to have that. Like, that's what mm-hmm. I want. I want to be able to handle it. And I don't know I will because I've never gone through something that difficult, but I've gone through stuff in my life. And I will, if I live long enough, have moments where I feel like a victim and I have. And so I don't know if that resonates with you as I'm describing that framework, what stands out, what sticks out as, as you've done all this work on, on your grandma and, and her, her journey and your grandpa as well. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I love that, the, you know, just how, how you kind of framed it with victim survivor thriver and i think it's probably healthy to progress through those range of emotions and and the hope is to be able to kind of go from one stage to the other because when something so traumatic happens to you yeah at first i'm just like for my my grandparents they asked why 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 us you know and, and that's understandable but ultimately what i observed from them is coming out of it on the other side which is the thriver mentality which is watch this you know we're gonna we're gonna work hard we're gonna build a life we're gonna build a family and not only that, but we're going to enjoy our experience on earth. You know, we're going to be loving and warm and, and really, you know, celebrate our families. And so, uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that. And I think, you know, one thing I've said about my book, when people say, you know, what do you want people to take from it? And what's the overall message? And I tell them, like, there's a lot of really hard things in this book, but ultimately it's a story of hope, you know, and, um, and if my grandmother can go through what she went through and overcome what she overcame, there's hope for us all. You mentioned dad getting bullied and, you know, not speaking the language when he came over, did he experience anti-Semitism? You know, you mentioned him being the only um, person whose parents survived the Holocaust, but Jews in basketball actually have a rich, rich, long history. Um, So it's not that he was the only Jewish basketball player, but did he talk at all about some things that he experienced? He also went to University of Tennessee um, for, for uh, college. And there's a whole nother story there with Bernard King and him and mm-hmm. uh, growing up in Washington, DC and being the age that, that we are Bernard King actually played for the bullets and, and became a player that I watched um, as a child. But did your dad at all talk about anti-Semitism? Did he experience it um, through his life? Was that a thread or a theme at all that, that you were brought up with? He did certainly in Romania under communism. When he came to the United States, he was, when I say bullied, kids picked on him and made fun of him because he didn't speak the language and language is kind of a theme in the book. And, you know, basketball and sports is a universal language. You know, we always say the ball, right? The basketball doesn't care what language you speak, doesn't care what country you're from, doesn't care what color your skin is, what religion you are. And that's what's so beautiful about the game. You know, so for my dad, he, he was, you know, so that was challenging for him, less so anti-Semitism in the United States. And then, and again, this this whole journey is is documented in real detail in the book because for my dad, basketball, it was a transformation. You know, he, 
he became such a phenomenon so quickly that you know he, it gave him a new life. And so if and, and, and as it relates to the University of Tennessee, because I get asked that question a lot because it's down south and it was at a time. And you know, I asked my dad very candidly, you know, did you feel anti-Semitism? And he said, if it was there, I, I didn't notice. And you know, for him, he was he was scoring so many points and he was so beloved, you know, that that hey, life life was good at that moment in time. It was, you know, people have have uh, said to me, like in Knoxville, like if you didn't, they call it Ernie G Mania, you know, because he was such a star. I said, if you weren't here for Ernie G Mania, man, you don't know what it was like. So, you know, he he didn't feel it as much, but Bernard King, you know, when they were called the Ernie and Bernie show, and they're one of the greatest duos in college basketball history, Bernard has talked publicly about the racism. You know, a black man from Brooklyn, you know, my dad's a Jewish immigrant from Queens. They went to Tennessee and, you know, we're one of this amazing duo, but Bernard experienced racism there, you know? And so for my dad, you know, he felt it less so, but certainly over the course of his life, he's experienced anti-Semitism. We've talked about it. Uh, you know, he finished his NBA career as a player for the New York Knicks. He wore number 18 for the Knicks, you know, which is in Judaism is a, the most significant number representing high, you know, which means for, you know, to life. And so, um, yeah, I mean, Judaism was an important kind of theme and thread, and but anti-Semitism is always a part of that, as you know. It's interesting in the United States when we think about our grandparents and um, think about the lives that they lived and and how different it was from the privileges that you and I both had mm -hmm. um, with fathers who had success in their careers and had financial success, and so we and, and had marriages and and the stability that you and I had. Um, growing up is very different. Well, actually, I think you talk about um, they had that <laughs> to a certain extent before the Holocaust over there. My grandma grew up in the middle class family and a very idyllic sort of childhood uh, mm -hmm. in Hungary. Um, but I think for a lot of people today, they're like, Jews have it great. Look at all these sports owners. Look at all these business CEOs. Look at all this success that Jews have in the United States. And yet we often are paranoid, scared, nervous of what could happen tomorrow. And I think it lives within us. And I know there's some research around uh, like trauma and how trauma can get passed down and create some fear. Um, and so we love our grandmas, but they still experience trauma at a level that few humans should ever have to experience. No humans should ever have to experience. It's interesting because over the last couple of years, you know, I'm a father, you're a father. And we, when you become a father, you start thinking about, well, what do I want to pass down to my kids and, and how can I raise them a certain way? You know, I hope your grandma's around till she's 136. Yeah. Um, but the reality is it, it, we don't know how long she's going to be around. My grandma's not around anymore. And so these Holocaust survivors are not going to be around at some point. And our kids are going to grow up with people. They're not going to be able to touch them, see them, feel them, hear from them. Whereas we did. And our parents, to an even more extent, your dad saw it in Romania and felt it. Um, and so he felt it differently. My parents felt it differently. There were places that Jews weren't allowed to go, even in the United States. And so I've been reflecting on my life and I've actually been like, holy shit, like I've been called a kike. Like mm -hmm. I've heard people say awful things about Jews without knowing that I'm Jewish around mm -hmm. me. Um, like I've heard someone say, yeah, that person was a dirty Jew and not know that mm -hmm. I was Jewish. And I didn't say anything. I like didn't check them. I was just like, oh, whatever. They're just what, you know, I, my big brother in my fraternity had a swastika put on his whiteboard in college. So like, it's interesting. Cause I never think about that. I have it 
anything other than privilege. Like, like I think in so many ways, I am just blessed beyond measure to your point about Bernard King. Like I, I don't experience racism. I I'm able to assimilate because of the color of my skin. And yet if I'm honest and I reflect on my life, I'm like, wait, there is actually an underbelly of this awfulness that does exist. And we have to be aware of it and open to it. And so I like go back and forth on that because I'm like, no, we're good. Like we're, we're good here. And then there's this other piece of me that's like, well, they were good there. And so like, how do you wrestle with that? Um, and how do you think about it? Yeah. So I find you know it, it's problematic for me, right? Because you make an assumption that if someone has professional success or material success, that there are no other possible challenges in their life, which in reality, couldn't, it's so far from the truth, because when you're talking about, you know, equality and freedom and, and what for the Jewish people have been life or death, you know, type of treatment, you know, that, that's always there. And so someone can be, you know, can own an NBA team or be a movie star and whatever it is. But at the end of the day, if you're Jewish, you feel anti-Semitism, you feel injustice, and it doesn't make it okay. So for me, the narrative of, oh, they're doing well, like they're, you know, there's a lot of, they've had a lot of, there's Jewish people who've had a lot of success, like many things can be true at the same time. You know, like, yes, that's great. Like you, you celebrate people's success professionally, but that doesn't mean there aren't challenges in life. And I would argue that the challenge of not being treated fairly uh, is the greatest one of all. And we've seen throughout history what that can lead to. And, and it, that can lead to really dangerous things, not only for Jews, right, for anyone. And my grandma always says, we, we have to tell these stories. We have to stand up against injustice, against any people, because what happened in the Holocaust could happen again, but not just to Jews. It could happen to other people, you know? So we need to stick together as a community, but we also need to stand up for other communities. And so, yeah, inequality and justice is never okay. It doesn't matter who it's against. And it doesn't matter what those people are doing at the time, whether you're the most successful person in the world or you're the least successful person in the world. Inequality and justice prejudice has no place and it's never okay. And it's never okay when it happens to you, you know, regardless of how successful you are or anything of the sort. It's interesting because you mentioned that this is really a story about hope. And as you were talking about that, the ball has a language of its own and that, you know, when you get on the court, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how you talk. I'm sure when you're playing in Spain, you're playing in Israel, you're playing with people that are from all over the world, which is mm -hmm. one of the cool things about professional basketball. And one of the nonprofits that I know you care about is Peace Players. Mm -hmm. And Peace Players, you know, I'm heavily involved with. I've gone to Israel twice with Peace Players. Um, I'm fortunate to be a part of their community. Um, can you talk about Peace Players a little bit? Because I think in a lot of ways, the work that they are doing speaks to what you feel about the game of basketball and how you feel about the grace of the game and what it can do in cities like Brooklyn or cities like Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or, uh, you know, in places like Ireland and South Africa and Cyprus and in Baltimore. I mean, what their mission is, is I think in alignment with how you think about the reason why this book should have been written. Without a doubt. And so I actually have, we're partnering with peace players around the book to have copies donated to, to their kids, right? So that just shows how much kind of the program means to me. I've been involved with them. I volunteered for them. And so, as you said, it, it's peace players is an organization that uses basketball to build bridges in areas of conflict. And certainly in Israel, between Israelis and Palestinians is one of their core areas. And I was able to witness that firsthand when I was playing in Israel. I 
you know, went to some, you know, volunteered at some kind of camps and, and went to some practices. And I saw is young Israeli girls and young Palestinian girls who are on two sides of a very kind of dangerous, intense conflict, play basketball together. And they, they were teammates, they were friends. Not only did they play basketball, but, but they did kind of exercises about how you communicate, how you understand people. I thought, and I told them after, if I just wish me and my teammates had as much, like did are doing what you all are doing right now. Like, it, and and I credit peace players for you know creating the platform for them to do that. But it speaks to the power of basketball in this instance, but kind of sports in general to to bring people together. It's and you know the game of basketball for me is the ultimate team sport. You know. Um, some other sports are about coordination. Basketball is about collaboration. Every play, you're you're feeling it out with others. You're dealing with disappointments. You're talking. You're giving feedback. And so those skills that you kind of acquire as a basketball player are so transferable to other parts of life. And and I think understanding other people is part of that. You know the different culture, the different upbringing. And so Peace Players has had so much success using the game to bring people together and really to, to create bonds that ordinarily wouldn't, wouldn't have been there. So I can't say enough about the organization and the work they do. That is such a cool statement. Basketball is about collaboration. Other sports might be about coordination. I think about American football and you have an offensive coordinator, a defensive coordinator, and the goal is to do your job and execute. And if you just run your route or you block where you're supposed to block, good things are going to happen is the idea. Whereas basketball is like emotion. It's, it's, it's fluid. And I <laughs> never thought about it that way. It is, it's collaborative. And you can see when teams are playing hero ball and you can see when they're taking turns and, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. Okay. Actually, it's funny you say that because I, the reason that I kind of came up with this years ago is I have a lot of friends who played football, some NFL players, and they say that football is the ultimate team sport because everyone's moving together. And if one person doesn't move at the right time, none of it works. And for me, I said to them, not very popularly, by the way, but I have to stick up for what I believe in and, and what and about basketball. But I said, listen, that to me is coordination. And that's really important. But yeah, when you, like you said, when you're talking about basketball, it's a whole different thing. You know, it, it is, it's the communication and the, the interpersonal dynamics that are at play. Well, I think the ultimate team sport that I've worked with is actually rowing. And, uh, but I'm thinking about it now because rowing, the goal is to get the paddles coordinated, mm-hmm. but the reason the paddles, the oars, I, see, I don't even know rowing. We could talk basketball, but it, the, the, yeah. the oars um, rowing in the same direction. But then I'm thinking about a little deeper One of the cool things about rowing or crew is that if you are a really fast rower and you are amazing, you actually have to slow down to be in sync with the rest of the boat. Um, But it it still may be more of that coordination than the collaboration because the passing of the ball, the movement, soccer has that, hockey has that. Um, There has to be elements of just togetherness. Hockey as a sport too is is so collaborative because you literally have to come off the ice and you can't stay on the ice for too long or else you're being selfish. But that's something fascinating. I've never, I've never thought about that way. Yeah. It's, you know, and basketball is one sport, like you're not wearing a helmet or, or anything else. And, you know, soccer, of course, is very team oriented as well. It's a huge field basketball. 
you're all right there. <laughs> you know, you're face to face, you're, you're close, you're talking every possession. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the nature of the game. Dan, this has been, this has been fascinating. And I think we covered a lot of ground here and I'm so excited to read the book. If people want to buy the book, I know you're doing a special also with peace players. Um, like you said, I'm going to go on and, and support that way um, and get some of those kids, your book, which I think will be awesome. Um, and, and I'll but, tell you very quickly, yeah. Brian, I, I have a book website. It's dangrunfeld.com. And there's a tab there that says donate and all the instructions are there. And that was, you know, one of my dreams with this book is to educate folks on the Holocaust and, and this story, but with the wrapper of basketball, you know, because again, the game brings us together, you know, so for peace players to be able to distribute copies of my book to some younger folks where they could learn about an important historical story, really, you know, connect with the game and then the way it can change lives uh, means a lot. So yeah, I just want to shout that out. DanGrunfeld.com. You can go, you can buy copies for yourself, you could donate. And so I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm going to do that. Is there anything else you want to promote or um, if people want to learn more about you and what you're up to, I know you're on Twitter. Um, where else can people find what you're doing with the book, what you're doing career wise? Um, and obviously they can go to your website if they want to purchase the book. I know they can purchase it at Amazon. They can also purchase it at a bunch of local bookstores. I thought it was cool. You're doing a lot to try to support mm -hmm. local bookstores that are carrying the book as well. Um, so what else should people know about uh, before we close today? Yeah. Twitter, Dan underscore Grunfeld, Facebook, Dan Grunfeld. You know, I'm easy to find. I love to connect and I'm just you know grateful for the opportunity, Brian, to talk to you today. This is awesome. And just for people to engage with my family story just means the world. So I, I thank you very much. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian. Oh, LinkedIn too. That's a You're good on, one too. Dan's yeah. on LinkedIn. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you can, you can connect with Dan on LinkedIn and try to sell him something. Cause that's what people like to do when they connect with people on LinkedIn. Right. <laughs> yes. Please sell, send me a message immediately about your product. I love oh, that. <laughs> it's amazing. It's just incredible. LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn, but those messages, it's like, if anyone's listening to this and you send me a message that you want to sell me something, I'm just not going to accept the message. You're better off just sending me a connection, connecting with me, and then then maybe try to sell me something. It'll, I, I, it'll I second better. that. I second <laughs> that. That's a better strategy. It's a better strategy. But uh, you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast, including we had Brendan Tuey on the podcast who co-founded Peace Players. We had Julie Ellian, who we mentioned earlier. Those are actually two of my favorite guests that I've had on. And, and Dan, this is also one of my favorite conversations I've had. So thanks for coming on and looking forward to seeing you while you're in town and, um, you know, looking forward to, to meeting your family at some point as well. So thanks for coming on the podcast and we'll talk again soon. You got it, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. Ultimately what I observed from them is coming out of it on the other side, which is the thriver mentality, which is watch this, you know, we're going to, we're going to work hard. We're going to build a life. We're going to build a family. And not only that, but we're going to enjoy our experience on earth. You know, we're going to be loving and warm and, and really, you know, celebrate our families. And so, uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that. And I think, you know, one thing I've said about my book, when people say, you know, what do you want people to take from it? And what's the overall message? And I tell them, like, there's a lot of really hard things in this book, but ultimately it's a story of hope.